If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desert place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The word of the Lord. This morning, we are officially halfway through the book of Mark. And most likely, you are familiar with how the story goes, and you're familiar with some of the characters in the story, like the Pharisees and the disciples, and you kind of know uh, their, their story in the Gospels, how they miss things and how they get things wrong over and over again. But this morning, put all that aside, and if we just considered everything that we've covered thus far in the first eight chapters, if we consider it from the perspective of a first-time reader of the gospel, then you can imagine that someone, would, someone in that position would easily expect Mark 8 to have different events than what we actually see. Because Jesus just fed the 4,000, not the 5,000. This is the 4,000. This is his second feeding miracle, or perhaps as Chef Kinney might say, his second culinary miracle, right? 
where he feeds a massive amount of people that have come to hear him. It's an extraordinary miracle. And then what do we see right after that? Well, the Pharisees, they demand a sign. Jesus, we need to see a sign from you. They're completely missing Jesus. But so are the disciples. Because they get in the boat with Jesus after he just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. And they are worried that they only have one loaf of bread. I mean, that is pretty fascinating, is it not? Just on the outside looking in. We can get to us in a second. But that is, it is an incredible situation that they find themselves in as you read it. They just saw this miraculous display of God's power and now they're worried that there won't be enough bread to go between them. Now, on the one hand, that should offer us some comfort as Christians. Why? Because we miss Jesus all the time. Of course we do. And so this blind man that we see at the end of our passage teaches us something. That it's about learning to have our eyes progressively opened more and more to see Jesus in all things and in all situations. It is a process. It does offer us comfort. We all miss him. Yet at the same time, it should offer us some caution as well. Because did you pick up on Jesus' frustration in this passage? It's pretty, quite on the surface. Verse 12, it says that he sighs deeply in his spirit. And the language is the language of disappointment. It's the language of, of frustration. It's the language of grief over the way things are going. Why? Well, and he carries that into the boat with the disciples as well. Why? Because he's wanting and looking for something more. He's looking for something more than he's getting from the Pharisees and from the disciples. And so, if we think about that for a second, and how it should caution us, and this frustration of Jesus, and that he's looking for something more, it's he's not getting it from the Pharisees. Which reminds us that this kingdom that Jesus is a, you know, bringing into this world is about more than knowing the Scriptures. You know, the Pharisees had that in spades. They could probably quote you the majority, if not all, of the Pentateuch. Their orthodoxy and their theological precision looked great on paper, yet they missed Jesus over and over again. And so Jesus is frustrated, perhaps, to remind us that he is not a God that is satisfied with being distant from us as long as we can quote some facts about him, as long as we can quote some truth about who and what he is. He's after more. But the disciples show us as well that this kingdom is not just simply about proximity. There's frustration that Jesus has towards the disciples. There's more than just being a part of his entourage and being around the work of the kingdom. It's more than just being a part of the right group of people. The disciples were around Jesus all the time. Yet what do we see? They miss Jesus over and over again. So we see Jesus frustrated. And it's because Jesus wants more than what he is getting in this passage. Because Jesus is the God that wants a personal, real, vibrant relationship with his people. That can be one of the simplest facts of our faith, which makes it oftentimes vulnerable to being the one that we forget the quickest. That he is dissatisfied because he wants a real, genuine relationship with his people where they see him, where you see him, and you recognize that he sees you. 
Now, again, sometimes that becomes so simple that we take it for granted. Yet at the same time, is that not what makes our faith so unique and so compelling when compared to all other faiths? I mean, one of the reasons, you know, for me personally, if I had to think about, you know, why am I a Christian? What are my reasons for faith? It's the fact that when you place Christianity and it's the, it's the divinity that Christianity claims next to all other claims of divinity, all other gods are boring compared to the God that's presented in the Bible. I mean, just think about the simple fact of the cross. Unless your God dies for his creation, shouldn't all other gods take a back seat? Until you see how much God would give in order to have a relationship with that which, with, which he has created, then all other religions pale in comparison. All other religions don't make nearly enough sense as this. There is no other religion that presents a God that wants a relationship with its creation like Christianity. A personal, real relationship. And it's one of the most compelling realities of our faith, and yet again, one of the easiest ones that we forget. And we see it from beginning to end in the story of the Bible. If you just think about the impact and reality and importance of a personal relationship with God and his desire for that with you. Just think about the story of the scriptures because it's bookended by two face-to-face encounters. You have Genesis 2 where God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, forms and fashions him, and he's just right, just how he wants him, but he's lifeless. What does God do? Of all the things that he could have done, he doesn't whisper a word. He doesn't sprinkle something on him to make him come to life. He gets in Adam's face and he breathes into his nostrils. That's close. He breathes, into, he breathes life into his nostrils and Adam wakes up and what happens? The first thing he sees is the face of God. That's a great way to wake up. And how does that, how does that relate to the rest of Adam's life and his purpose? Well, it, he walks and he talks and lives in the presence of God. That's the first face-to-face encounter. And then at the very end of the scriptures in Revelation 21, you see another face-to-face encounter. The second-to-last scripture, that on the threshold of eternity, what does God do? He comes near to every single one of his people, and he wipes away every tear from every single eye. If you don't like intimacy, then Christianity is always going to be uncomfortable. Because those are that is pictures of incredible intimacy that God wants with his people. And so, if that is what bookends the scriptures, these face-to-face encounters, then what does that communicate about what God really wants everywhere else in between? It automatically should tell us that God desires a face-to-face relationship with you, and that you are made for nothing, nothing less. You are made to live before the face of God. And sometimes that just kind of becomes a hallmark card, again, right, of the faith, a sweet little reminder. But think about the significance of that. How much dignity and value does that offer to your life? How precious you are to God. How much significance does that give to your existence? That God would choose and do everything that he possibly could to look at you for eternity, right? The fact that he would spend eternity with you in that type of relationship, that gives your life a significance that is beyond description. What does that communicate about your purpose? What does that communicate about your capacity for satisfaction and a reminder that we will never find anything in this world that will satisfy us? 
Because we were made to stare into the infinite for all eternity. And only then would we be satisfied because only then will we finally be at rest and be at home. But most importantly, what does that communicate about God? A God that would give himself so fully, so completely, and so personally. It's God's desire for you that you would see him face to face, that you'd encounter him. It's the very story of the scriptures. And you see that throughout the scriptures. But what you also see throughout the scriptures is where and how God meets his people. Where these encounters with the face of God actually occur. One of the places we see in how God does this is Hosea. And really one of the more beautiful depictions of how this happens when God says to Hosea about Gomer slash Israel, one and the same essentially. He says, I will allure her into the wilderness and there I will speak tenderly to her. Don't say there, I'm going to shout at her. Or I'm going to pass her a note. I'm going to speak tenderly face to face to her. I'm going to whisper in her ear. I'm going to gently allure her into the wilderness. God meets his people in the wilderness of life. Do you want to meet God? You will most likely all the time, only ever, meet him in the wilderness. He meets us in the desolate places. He brings Israel out of Egypt where? to the wilderness. Do you want to prepare for, for Jesus? Do you want to prepare for the way of the Lord? You have to go out to the wilderness to hear from John the Baptist. You've got to go out into the desolate place to prepare yourself for this king. Because the wilderness is where our attention is refocused. It's where distractions are removed. The wilderness is where you run out of resources. It's where your willpower doesn't work anymore. It's where your answers fall short. And all you have left is to find that you actually aren't alone. All you have left is God himself. All you have left is what he provides for you. And yet we see time and time again that even though that feels scary to us at times, how profound it can be when you meet God in that wilderness, desolate place in life. And for me, I think the most profound in the scriptures is the story of Job. At the very end, where God meets him in the whirlwind, in a very desolate place after he lost his family, lost everything. The only thing he had left was his wife. After he lost all of that in a day, the desolation that he was experiencing, and then God comes to him in the whirlwind. Now, we've said many times, there's more going on when God speaks to Moses, or Moses, when God speaks to Job, than him just giving him a theological spanking, okay? Like, Job, who are you to question me? Do you have storehouses of snow? Didn't think so. Stop complaining. Like That is not the point of Job's conversation with God. What's happening? Well, what does Job say? He says, I'm not going to speak anymore. I have nothing left to say. Before I'd only heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Now I have seen you. We see in words what Job saw with his eyes and in reality. Now here's the fundamental thing about that, is that Job says, I'm comforted. I turn away from my mourning and I turn away from the dust and ashes because now I see you. And that's pretty profound because in that conversation, God never once gives Job a single reason or answer for why he allowed anything to befall him. Not one time. He just simply gives himself 
And that was enough for Job to be comforted without any answers given everything that he had lost. It's no small thing to encounter the face of God. It's no small thing to encounter him and for that to be enough. I find that a compelling reason to pursue this type of God. That even amidst the greatest amount of suffering, that just knowing him is answer enough. There's no other story like it on the planet. And we've seen that same story playing out throughout the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus meets people in the wilderness places of life. A woman with an issue of blood, he meets a little girl in death, people in their sickness, people in their disease, people on the outskirts, on the edges and on the fringes, ostracized by society. He sees people time and time again and meets them in the wilderness. And we see the same thing here with the 4,000. He meets them in the wilderness place. The feeding of the 5,000 was with Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 is with Gentiles because this is a Gentile region. He's bringing true again, once again, what he said in Hosea. He's alluring his people out into the wilderness so that he can speak tenderly to them. Verse 3 says that some had come from so far away. So I'm just giving you a geographical idea of where these people come from. This is fulfillment language. This is the one who draws us into the wilderness and speaks tenderly to us. Verse 4, it says that he brought them where? To a desolate place in the wilderness. And now all of them are out of food because they'd been listening to Jesus teach for three days. And they didn't bring enough food for as long as they'd been there. Why? Because they're hungrier for something more than bread. They're hungrier for something more than just food. And they were satisfied. They encountered Jesus and they were satisfied by him. And I think one of the hardest parts about our faith is that Jesus is not afraid to invite us and draw us into the wilderness. Because we know what that is. It's a place where our resources run out. It is a place where our willpower isn't enough. It's a place where we don't have answers and we can feel alone. And that feels threatening to us. That feels risky to us. And we don't like the wilderness because we do not like to be brought to the end of ourselves. I would love a faith that was really vibrant and all I ever had to trust in was my own resources. That would be great. It doesn't exist. I really wish the Beatitudes said, blessed are the comfy, you know, but they don't. Why? Because this faith is not about allowing us to rest in the way that we want life to be. It's drawing us deeper towards Jesus. And oftentimes the way that has to happen is we have to be made uncomfortable in the wilderness places. And yet time and time again, the Bible tells you that that is worth it. And Job tells you that is worth it. This story tells you it's worth it to find him in those wilderness places because you will be satisfied beyond your, beyond, beyond your even hunger. There was, what, seven baskets left over once again. Jesus is more than you can handle. And yet in the rest of this passage, we see with the Pharisees and the disciples that, you know, once again, we can miss Jesus. Why? Because, well, they're literally doing what we're talking about literally face-to-face with Jesus. They see him. You know, they live with him. They walk with him. They talk with him. They're arguing with him here. They're doing exactly what we're talking about, living before the face of Jesus, and yet they're not seeing him. They're, They're missing him. They're not actually seeing him for what he is, despite the fact that he's right in front of them. 
And so first, if we consider the Pharisees, we see that we can miss Jesus by avoiding risk. And so if you look at verse 15, they get in the boat, just Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus starts to warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, or Herodians. So essentially, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't like each other at all, but they did have a common enemy. It was Jesus. And so they started to conspire together. And so Jesus is warning his disciples about the leaven of both the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is just simply referring to yeast. But in the ancient world, leaven is often used as an illustration or a metaphor. Uh, It's used in a negative light to beware of something's influence in your life. The way that leaven would affect the whole, you know, loaf, the way that it would affect the whole amount of dough, it's the same thing. To beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, because there's a sense of ruining and corruption. That there's something going on that if you allow what they're doing into your life, it breeds corruption and it ruins the faith that we are called to have. And so, what then is the leaven that Jesus is warning us about? Well, if you look at verse 11, it says that after Jesus feeds the 4,000, what do the Pharisees do? Well, they start an argument, and they demand a sign. Everything Jesus had done up to that point evidently was not enough. And so behind what they're doing is they're essentially asking Jesus to put a credential on the table. Well, yeah, you cast out some demons. Yeah, you fed some people. But really give us a sign that shows you are who you say you are. Really give us a sign that shows that you are are from God. So they're calling him out, calling him to the mat, and saying, we want proof that you are from God. And so they're giving Jesus what? They're giving Jesus this if-then statement. Well, if you, just, if you just do this, then we'll believe in you. If you just do this, we'll believe in you. Jesus deals with this throughout his ministry, even all the way to the cross, when they say, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Come down from the cross, we'll be, do this, And of course, faith will come so quickly to us if you just do this, Jesus. And yet we know that it's all a facade. It's all fake. It's all posturing. Because behind their demand for a sign, they're not really looking for any reason to believe. What they're looking for is every reason to not believe. There's no sense that they're coming to Jesus to be persuaded because they're testing him. And they're unwilling to be persuaded because their real goal in the end is to discredit Jesus and his teaching and his ministry about the kingdom. And so, what then is the leaven of the what is the leaven of the Pharisees? It's unbelief. But it's unbelief that's couched in an active looking for every reason to not have faith. It's justifying our unwillingness to not trust Jesus. It's actively looking for every reason to avoid faith. And I think if we looked at the Pharisees for a second from what we can gather about the the rest of the Gospels is that for the Pharisees to actually have faith and follow Jesus was very disruptive for their life. It was very threatening and very risky for them to actually say that they trusted Jesus. Because one, they would have to admit that they didn't have everything together and they weren't as righteous as they thought they were. They were jealous of Jesus and all the crowds, so they had to learn to no longer desire being the center of everybody's attention. They had to recognize that the things that God wanted and His priorities were not the same as their priorities. 
They had to recognize all sorts of things. They would have lived a completely different life had Jesus, or had they decided to follow Jesus. Yet, they don't because it was too threatening to the way they wanted life to be. And I think we can all relate to that, can't we? That following Jesus is risky. Being a part of a church is risky. Being a part of a church can feel threatening. And yeah, we may not exhibit you know, the blatant unbelief and resistance to Jesus that the Pharisees do, yet beware of that leaven of unbelief. Beware of the leaven of unbelief because that works its way into our lives all the time. And we too, in those moments where we feel like following Jesus is too risky, we start to kind of come up with our own if-then statements, right? We develop our own terms for the agreement. So it's if-then statements like, well, if I really knew that nobody would ever hurt me or betray me or disappoint me, then I would enter into biblical community. Then I would begin to trust other people. Or if I knew that uh, I would be okay financially, if I could just get to a place where I'm fine financially, then I would give and trust that it's better to give than to receive and participate in the kingdom. We have all sorts of if-then statements that excuse us from faith. Why? Because following this king is risky, and it always will be. But the problem is, is that when we have those if-then statements, we're not really looking for a moment of faith. We're looking for every possible reason to excuse ourselves from having faith. And when that happens, when faith goes, encountering Jesus goes. Because he invites us into those things so that we might meet him, we might know him more personally, we might know him more fully. But the problem with all of that is that once we start stipulating the terms of the agreement, we're no longer looking for a king. Maybe we're looking for, start looking for an advisor or someone to give us some good advice, but we're not looking to come and live life on Jesus' terms. And so, are you missing Jesus? Well, as you evaluate where you're at this morning, what are your ifs? What feels like it has to be there before you can really trust him? What are you afraid of? And what about this story communicates that it's not worth it to put that aside and to follow after him? Finding him in the wilderness is to be satisfied by him in the wilderness. And secondly, we have the disciples. How do they miss Jesus? Well, they're in the boat with Jesus as they leave this conversation with the Pharisees. And Jesus warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees. And so here's some really deep seminary-level education exegesis that I'm about to give you as to what's happening in this passage. Jesus starts talking about leaven of the Pharisees, and the, Phar- and the disciples say, you know, speaking of bread, I'm starving, Right? It's pretty much what happens to a lot of us every Sunday. Jesus wants to talk to us, and you're thinking about how you're going to slam some tacos after the service, because why? Hunger is a really powerful motivator in our lives. And so here the disciples are hungry. Like, goodness, Jesus, that's, all that's great, but I am starving right now. And they start talking about it. And then they realize there's only one loaf. And then they realize that that's not enough to go around, and they got a long journey ahead because they're heading to Jerusalem. And so they start to fixate on the problem. Now again, this is fascinating considering everything that they've just seen. They just saw Jesus feed 9,000 people, and now they're worried about having one loaf. It defies 
logic, but it's there for a reason because their story is our story, right? We do the same exact thing. And it happens so easily when we just fixate on the problem. A couple of years ago, I was leading the service on a normal Sunday, and we got to the portion of confession. I don't even really remember what it was about, but I do remember that part of the topic that day, the theme for the passage was you know, removing distractions and coming to Jesus and trying to seek his face like the, like the sermon today. And so I said something to the effect of, you know, maybe you came and instead of finding Jesus, you just jotted down your to-do list on your worship guide. And then I, I kind of went on and, you know, later on after the service, somebody came up to me and they go, you got me. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And they said, they showed me, they, they had actually, as I, as I said that in confession, they were writing down their to-do list. On the outside, I'm like, mm, man, I'm so glad you were encouraged. On the inside, I'm like, that is awesome, because that's like the most prophetic thing that's ever happened to me, like in a service. And so I thought it was pretty great. But is it not a really human moment? Because it's really easy to think about all the things that need to get done, all the things that need, you need to do, all the, things that, uh, all the things that need your attention other than Jesus. It's easy to beat up on the disciples and say, don't you remember after you've seen all the things that Jesus has done, can't you not get rid, or can you not get through this moment where all you have is one loaf? I mean, let's be honest. We followed Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Don't we do the same thing even after all this time? It just takes somebody cutting us off in traffic before the rest of our day is ruined. And it's just the domino that begins to make us frustrated and angry, and it stirs all these things up to where we're not thinking about Jesus. We're just complaining and fixating on the problem. And we do the same thing. And the reason is because it's really easy to go through life via crisis management, where life really is about just the next problem on the table, where all we can see is what is the urgency of the present? What's the problem I got to deal with now? And we'll deal with that, and then we move to the next problem, and the next problem. And we go through life just via crisis management, and it's one problem after the other. And we don't ever feel like we're changing or growing because we never see beyond the problem of the moment. We can never see beyond the problem of the present. We know what this is like. And Jesus would invite us to look beyond the problem of the present and to see him. And how does he do it with the disciples? Well, how does he invite them to see him? And he starts asking him a list of questions. He says, you know, a number of things. I think there's seven questions there. He says, do you, not, do, you, do, you, do you not see? Do you not hear? Are your hearts hardened? Asking them all of these questions. And at the very end, he says, do you not remember? Do you not remember? And so then he starts walking them through it. And he says, whenever we had the 5,000, how many loaves did we start with? And how many baskets did we end up with? Twelve. Right. And then the, the 4,000, how many loaves did we start with? How many baskets did we end up with? Seven. Right. Now, who's with you in the boat right now? Who is with you right here, right now? It's the same person that did all of that. And Jesus is doing this with the disciples and reminding them of the past. Why? Because if you want to see Jesus in the present, you've got to start learning to see him in your past. The disciples are literally not seeing him in the moment because they'd forgotten everything. Their inability to remember the past kept them from seeing and being reminded of who it is that's with them in the boat. And it's the same thing with you. 
Jesus does that with them, he'll do the same thing with you as he tries to get you to see him. As he's going to ask you, don't you remember? You want to see me now? How about you? we look and you can see me then? Who was with you whenever you had nothing? Who was with you when you lost your job and you didn't think you were ever going to get back on your feet again? Who was with you whenever you lost a parent or you lost a child or you thought you were going to lose a child? Who was with you when you didn't know how your bills were going to be paid that month or that year? Who was with you every step of the way? Do you not remember? Now, who's in the boat with you? Who's with you right now? Look at me. It's the invitation to us all is to live before the face of God. And yet, it can be so hard to do that. Which is why we need to turn the last part of this passage into a prayer. When Jesus heals this blind man. It's a very strange miracle because it's the only miracle in the entire scriptures that's done in two parts. So it looks like Jesus like sort of heals him, something didn't take, and then he does it again and it finally worked. But that's not what's going on. He's teaching us something. He's teaching us how to understand this passage and he's teaching the disciples something very important. Because every miracle is also a parable. So Jesus lays hands on this man and he says, now, what do you see? He says, I see men like trees walking around. I can, start, I can see a little bit. Jesus says, okay, and then he lays hands on him again and he's fully healed and he sees clearly. What is Jesus communicating to the disciples and to us in this passage? It's that if you really, it's that you need Jesus if you really want to see. And if you really want to see, you need to see Jesus. You need Jesus to help you see, and what you need to see is Jesus. And if you turn that into a prayer, it's simply this, Lord Jesus, help me see you. Why would he not answer that prayer when the whole book, start to finish, is that? That's the prayer of Job. He went from hearing of God to seeing him and was comforted. That's the hope of these 4,000 people that came wanting to see him and they saw him and they were satisfied. That's the hope of this blind man who in an instant opened his eyes and what? Saw himself face to face with Jesus. That is a prayer that God loves to answer because that's a prayer for the very thing for which you and I were made. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would Help us to see you. Help us to see how marvelous and kind and gracious and merciful you are. Help us to recognize the things that we're, we're afraid of. Help us to recognize our fears that keep us from, from following you. We can be afraid of being hurt. We can be afraid of being rejected. We can be afraid of really just about anything and everything. And yet, you invite us to come and to follow after you to come and to trust you. Would you give us the faith that would allow us to have that type of courage, to cast ourselves upon you and know and see that you are in the boat with us. Help us not to forget, but help us to see with eyes. Help us not just to be those that hear, but those that have seen. We ask all this in your precious name, and we ask that you would meet us at your table. And everybody said, Amen.